Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Hearsay Podcast. My name is Saya, this is number 37 and my guest today is Alex Cameron. Alex has of course been playing music for a super long time. He played in the amazing electronic band CK before heading out on his own or rather with his business partner and saxophonist Roy. Uh, I spoke to Alex on the phone. It was a lovely summer afternoon for him in Queens and you can hear some people having a barbecue in the background uh, as well as the ice clinking in his glass, uh, which I love. Uh, Alex has some super entertaining stories and I really enjoyed our chat. We've been trying to work out a time to chat for almost a year now. Uh, but he's constantly touring. He's honestly one of the hardest working musicians I know. Uh, so I'm really grateful he found the time. Uh, speaking of touring, Alex's fantastic illustration was done by his friend Emily Panic, who is a comedian and has, amongst many other amazing things that she does, uh, opened for Alex on one of his tours. You can check out what she does on her website, www.emilypanic.com, or on Instagram at a pretty big mouth one word. Uh, you can see all these illustrations on Instagram at Hearsay Podcast or on the Hearsay Facebook page. Uh, rate or leave a podcast review on iTunes if you feel like it. It helps people find the podcast, which is nice. Uh, here we go. Hearsay Podcast number 37, Alex Cameron. got a little situation here it's nice what's your situation what's your drink i'm drinking this casamigos tequila which is uh Ooh. which is george clooney's tequila brand oh yeah <laughs> i mean it's kind of ridiculous to be into that drink like as a thing yeah but i um but i am dearly it's like my it's like my favorite drink it's all, it's all wow. I, I just I, I live in uh in queens in in new york and I uh, and I I leave my house and I walk down to this little bottle shop, which is like a hole in the wall. And the guy's got my brick of, of tequila there, and I come back and I've been drinking it. It's 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 um, it's <laughs> I can sit I can sip on it like water, so it's like oh wow I don't have to, that's so you know, nice. I've, yeah, yeah I've wondered what that taste. Is it affordable? Is it like tasty and affordable? It's it's definitely affordable for how tasty it is, but it's like okay. I don't know. Tequila is the kind of the kind of drink where if, like, it's my it's my favorite liquor, but a bad a bad sip of tequila can um, sort of make me want to like gag a little bit, you know? Like the 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 lower uh, the, I mean, not even I wouldn't even say it's a price thing. I guess it's just a taste thing. But this cost me like about forty five bucks a bottle, and oh yeah, That's it's like totally you know affordable. it's it's affordable. It's like drinking. It's like so drinking a half decent. I don't know how much is a bottle of Jameson. Uh, it's like I think it's like forty dollars Australian. So that's I don't know. Right. So I'm. I mean, US wise, I'm probably spending fifteen dollars more or something. But yeah, um, I don't know. It's delicious. Yeah. I can sip on all the time. Yum. I wrote this like poem and I sent it to him, the company. Really? Yeah. I was drinking <laughs> the tequila and I was like, oh, I like this, and I wrote it and I sent it to him. And uh, do you remember the first line? Um. I think it was just the first time it was just I drink tequila. 
<laughs> I love it. Did you get a response? I did. Yeah, they were super into it. Oh, that's uh, so nice. It's they funny. They've been stoked. It's funny. <laughs> kind of ridiculous. I think it's really nice to make an effort like that. You know, if you like something, tell the people that make it. I think it's the same thing with music. Like, just tell people you like it. Mm-hmm. You know, they've put so much effort into it. A hundred percent. A friend, a friend of mine told me. Um, a friend of mine who became a friend of mine because they reached out to me and told me um, they liked the record, like they'd had a lot more success than I have in, in music. His, his name's Brandon, uh, Brandon from, yeah. from The Killers, and he said, um, I've stopped like voicing my opinion on things that I don't like and started making sure I'm just focusing on what I do like and I'm like going out of my way to tell people that I like it as opposed to what he used to do when he was young, which is what I, th- I feel like everyone does when they're young, is just like talk shit on stuff that they don't like. Totally. What a sweetheart. That's so nice. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I was like, oh, cool. So you can be really successful and, and not jaded. I like the sound of that eventually. You know, I would like to do that. I heard this great story about Harry Nilsson. He got like a phone call from George Harrison and George was like, I love the record. I'm obsessed with it. It's really great. And then the next night the phone rang and it was like, Paul McCartney and Paul was like I love the record I'm so excited about it and he was like great this is so nice and then the next day John Lennon rang and he was like I'm I'm so in love with your record it's my favorite and then the next night he like waited up all night waiting for Ringo to call and he never did oh (laughs) man that's awesome (laughs) but I love that story because it's like people going out of their way and even like you know the most famous band in the world were like I'm gonna tell this person yeah I love what they're doing and imagine how much that would have meant to him for sure I mean especially in this industry when it's like every every like minute artist interaction is is kind of like there's an undercurrent of does this person hate me or does this person like it's like two options generally on 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 like my mind when I was younger it's like does this person think I'm ripping them off or does this person (laughs) think I'm better than them and they hate me for it it's like kind of two options you know that would have Um, been really exhausting I mean it's also kind of motivating in other ways you know but it's just like this sort of cagey very like uh, I find that like musicians generally um are very sort of like progressive people in terms of how they would like their their art to be received um but it, then you throw them into a basically like uh, a pretty um like a, a pretty cutthroat business model and it's like where these people that don't really want competition uh, business wise but we're like forced to like compete with one another do you still think about whether or not people think you're ripping them off or whether or not people like you um well, I, I'll say this: a lot of um, a lot of my uh, apprehension about what people thought about me went away when I started doing like over 150 shows a year. It was like there was just yeah. no time to think about it. <laughs> totally. I think that like I made a distinct decision to put all that all that shit behind me when I just said I'm gonna say I'm gonna say yes to every single show offer, and instead of worrying about whether or not people accept me i'm just gonna make sure that i'm like always getting better and always working you know and like that's That's like awesome that's definitely helped me combat uh like those unnecessary sort of paranoid thoughts yeah i i definitely still think about it but i i think most musicians do have like a tiny bit of a like 
you just want to be adored for for whatever reason (laughs) and you're not always going to be adored and that's something you have to like come to terms with yeah if you're putting something out there you know oh i remember when i first like um put out a record i would have been like 19 years old or something and i remember going on internet forums and people being like have you heard they're talking shit about you on this internet forum and i was like oh no i was like holy smokes and it wasn't that big of a deal it was just reading in text that someone didn't like the album yeah and it's like i just was completely unprepared for that i thought that people would only talk about it if they liked it and then just not bring it up if they didn't but then i realized that the nature of of like presenting or just like releasing your work is um is you have to hear both sides you know and that's a that's a i don't know who said this but if you're gonna they said if you're gonna believe uh the good reviews and you gotta believe the bad ones you know it's kind of it's an interesting lesson it's a, it's a balance of of um of getting your feeling it's like a experience of getting your feelings hurt and trying to balance your response maybe it's just better not to believe anyone else's opinion <laughs> just don't read them <laughs> yeah it, that's true but you, not everyone has the opportunity to to like even consider doing what what i've been doing the past five years which is literally playing yeah. playing playing you know that's a that's a that's a very like unique experience on, on its own yeah and that's been the way i've gotten around giving a shit about what people say because no one can really say anything if you're working that's like yeah that's my that's how it's always been for me no one can if 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 you're working in whatever field it is or whatever profession or even, you know, whatever job, every job I've worked has been like, well, I've got income coming in. So, you know, that's, that's no one can really say shit, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm earning and I'm busy and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm too busy for that shit. I'm too busy to hear what that person has to say about me. I got to get, sorry, I'd listen, man, but I, I got to get to work, you know, I got all this yeah. shit I got to do. <laughs> that's true. Like, what are you doing with your time if... Uh, if all you have to do is sit around thinking about me, <laughs> you know, I'm, exactly. way too, I'm way too busy over here. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely a good attitude. Mm. Hey, I wanted to, um, going back to like saying yes to um, to every show, mm. one of the first things, because I, I think I made that decision years ago to just um, not to like uh, sort of progress musically that much, but I think at the time for me it was about um, having experiences and just doing weird shit. Mm-hmm. So I was saying yes to all the weird shit. And one of the weird things that I did was something that you also did. Um, we played in this really bizarre drum circle at the opera house. <laughs> oh, yeah, the percussion discussion. Uh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It was a, I think it was 20 drummers and two keyboard players. Mm-hmm. And we played at the opera house and it was one show only. Yeah, and it was curated by Nick Zinner from the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, a part of his show. And it was in, in the in the like the concert hall, like it was in the main it was room. In the, <laughs> that's it. Uh, I mean, <laughs> and I remember like having that put to me, and I was like, I have no concept of what this is gonna sound like, and mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, fuck it, I'm just gonna do it anyway. So I was one of two synth players, and you were one of the twenty drummers that had like partial kits. That's right. Rem- what, what do you remember about that show? I remember I was like, I guess I had like, at the time, like really massively untreated, like anxiety. Like I just thought that's what what I, what I was going through at that time. I just thought was life and later discovered that in fact I was like, you know, experiencing something. Um, 
So I was drinking a lot to self-medicate. So I remember being like, like very um, irrational, like not irrationally, but um, unsuitably drunk for that because it was very much like, like wear your, that. wear your white shirt and like, I wasn't sloppy. That's right. It was just, it, I was just like getting loaded to like, just go on stage. And um, so I remember being a little bit, um, I remember being a little bit confused. So I certainly was confused. And I guess we weren't getting paid a huge amount of money, but I, I was at a point where I was like, you know, like what, 250 bucks sounds good. You know, and I get to play, I get to yeah. be in the, in the, in the, in the concert hall or oh no, in the, yeah, yeah. In the concert hall. Um, I remember getting, I think I got the work through, through Lawrence. Uh, yeah, I Lawrence think he, Pike. yeah, I think he, um, we're good friends and he's obviously like a, the, the premier drummer in Sydney, probably yeah. in Australia. And like, he's definitely one of the better drummers I've ever seen on any stage. Incredible drummer. Yeah. Um, and, I, and so he asked me if I wanted to do it. I, I think that's how it went down. And, uh, and I was like, um, I guess at that time trying to get better at everything that I was doing. So I just said yes to it. And I remember there was like a, it was probably a rehearsal or two in Redfern. Was there? Yeah. It was that, um, carriage work. Carriage works. I remember turning up yeah. and, uh, I, I can just, I distinctly remember I was in a group with, with Brian Chase was the sort of the 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 leader and i i um i remember him looking at me and what i was doing in this percussion discussion as we called it uh <laughs> away from the people who'd organized it uh <laughs> um i i in this group with lawrence and and lawrence is doing all this like rad shit with his hi-hat and his snare and and brian's like yeah man like that's rad you know and then he looks over uh, looks over at me and he was just a little bit like all right like <laughs> Just like a little bit less impressed yeah. than he was with Lawrence. Just like <laughs> if he was spinning plates, Lawrence's would have been like, like going really cool and fast and like <laughs> glittering. And then mine would have sort of been like really wobbly. And he would have just been like, oh, I think that one's actually stopped. I'm not sure if that one's stopped. I'm just going to leave that one. <laughs> I remember the um, the other keyboard player who was like, you know, he's like a really amazing, like modular sound artist mm-hmm. from New York. And... He said, um, can you give me a little um, more timbre, less texture? And I was like, yes. <laughs> Holy fuck. Absolutely. I like, yes, I can. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. In fact, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to talk to you about the timbre and the texture. <laughs> um, and then I wanted to say that could have links into the second part where um, I think one of the first times I ever saw your band CK play mm-hmm. was also at the Opera House. And that was, I think, part of Vivid Festival. Yeah, that was and that was the first time I ever sang on stage. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, because I, I think at that point, I'd probably only seen you play a couple of times and um, and then you started singing and I was like, man, they're good at everything. That's crazy. In that room, the acoustics were so beautiful and, and yeah, I just remember like being so impressed because I've always loved like all of your um, electronic music too. That's really um, sweet. And then of you. I was like, man, he is really good at singing. That's crazy to say that. I remember because I, that was literally the first time I'd gotten on stage and and sang a song. I mean, we've been I've been playing drums the entire and like sam- samplers and keyboards the entire time in what was largely an instrumental band before that, and. 
um, I'm I'm really uh, that's a really sweet thing to say because my memory of of that is very much like my mind just being like, oh, you guess you're gonna have to just do it, you know, like because I just I just <laughs> didn't know I still didn't like, we're I'm we're talking about a sold out um you know like concert hall at the oh no wait at the uh, it was a, it was the opera theater it was it was like it was big it's a big theater it was probably like fifteen hundred people there and I was really comfortable behind the drums you know and and, and on keyboards if I was doing that. Um, but then we decided to do a couple of new songs and, um, yeah, it was very much like, I didn't know how to use a microphone on stage, you know, and <laughs> I didn't know how to project my voice properly. I didn't know this, didn't know that, but, um, I, yeah, it was very much like, I was so like, oh shit, we're doing this that I then like just had to just say, okay, well, let's just see how the muscle memory goes. You know, let's just, just do it. Don't think about it. And let's hope that it, it works out. Well, I was impressed. I remember that specifically because I think I was sitting next to Julia who was managing you at the time mm-hmm. um, and we were both like, man, this is so good. <laughs> oh, that's really, that's <laughs> Look cool. Look at him I'm, go. <laughs> I'm glad you had that memory. I can, I can like add that to mine now, you know. Um, yeah, that was, that was a wild thing. That was like really um, afterwards very much felt like it, we, I had like, it, it, like sort of, decided in my mind oh i'm gonna do that more now you know after i did it it was like that's happening more and more i'm gonna make sure that that keeps happening you know so tell me about the transition then about like going from your like highly uh electronic sample based music to then uh, you know doing your own stuff and and recording jumping the shark yeah i so i mean what was what was up until that point in 2000 i guess it was 2012 um I hadn't really wa- I in my mind I considered that I could um potentially be a singer. Um and I I'd, I'd always liked singing like melodies and that's how I uh, that's how I wrote with my like sort of just like my mind and with my my voice. Um mm. but I never recorded it and then uh I guess I started having these distinct feelings that that CK the band um was like largely driven by the fact that um arguably and i believe that we were like young and had like a pretty confident taste in what we were doing um back in back in those days you know it was very much like where the i felt as though in in around 2012 2013 we were like you know i didn't think this at the time but in retrospect i look back and it's like oh we were just these young kids who had like the the drive and the opportunity to like do something that they thought was cool and yeah and that was what drove it that was the engine and i had this weird feeling like oh what if like what if my drive what if my drive to dig deep into like the fringe of electronic music um wavers you know and it, and it, 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 this is a very specific thought to have i think for like a 21 year old or a 22 year old but i was uh, struck by the fact by the idea that I should expand my skill set I was like I can't just stop here with like sounds and 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 instrumental performance I have to learn how to write songs and how to tell stories so I started listening to a lot of songs I, I, I switched it up and started listening to a lot of bands and a lot of songwriters um, and you know I branched off my my electronic music taste so you know I so it wasn't like I just dropped the ball and went to like acoustic songwriting it's all very much still within the realm of transitional yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, what were you listening to do you remember um 
Well, I started listening to like a like nineteen eighties um, Leonard Cohen. Um, oh right. Just because that was like I got I got I got struck by the record. Um, I'm your man. I really, I heard I'm your man, and I yeah, was like, um, so I spent like maybe three or four years with it, like just contemplating it, and I didn't like it at first, and it, it's just like I started craving it, and then all of a sudden it was like really beautiful. And that was over the course of like a year of listening. Wow. Um, <laughs> and I, I liked it because it was like they were. It was a record made in the '80s. They were using contemporary technology, and then. Uh, Leonard Cohen was like was in a lot of the songs embodying these characters and using his sort of his style and his approach to to um sort of ignite this like world around around the songs and I guess I that in that in combination with like I started getting like heavily back into Australian like pub rock and and, and rock from the the 70s like the Angels and um and midnight oil and even got it i got super i really heavily into the reels um the wheels i no, don't know who that is no reels like a fishing reel oh, the reels. yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> i was like who are the wheels is i'm gonna write that band <laughs> name band. down is there a band called the wheels <laughs> alex cameron and the wheels alex cameron and the wheels that would be an amazing <laughs> thing to come out with everyone just sort of like the wheels like yeah i'm fucking changing it now it's the wheels <laughs> yeah right so that's cool so you started started listening to all kinds of different songwriters and a lot of that stuff was narrative based is that what made you want to get into that sort of narrative based songwriting as well yeah yeah that and the fact that like all the songs i loved from when i was a kid were were lyrical and and, and like and definitely narrative driven and and uh i guess i went from at uh, this weird turn where i went from like wanting to prove that i could be a musician to wanting to like have my songs actually in like be effective and beautiful and strong you know so it was like i i guess i could put it like i instead of wanting to prove to my let's say prove to my mom you know that i that hey look i'm doing it up here mom you know uh to instead being like oh i want to i want to fuck her up i want to make her cry yeah right wow you know it's like a, diff- a different sense of like you know because my, my mom's been like extremely supportive of me being a musician like really emotionally supportive um encouraging me to like even though i you know i, I worked full time and, and studied and did different different things to get by she was always very much like how's the music going you know like make sure you keep doing it and so oh how sweet yeah i got really lucky um, i guess i'm like the youngest of three children so she's a little bit easier on me and a little bit more like supportive of biz- bizarre ideas <laughs> as opposed to like paranoid that i'm gonna fuck it up you know <laughs> did you guys have a lot of music around at home when you're growing up yeah yeah we, i had like we had like a 10 cd stacker and we, we didn't, ha- didn't have a tv we had like an old tv that only had like three channels on it and like uh, didn't have a remote <laughs> you know um, they upgraded eventually, and we all went. We had fucking, one of those too. Well, they, they up, my <laughs> folks upgraded, and we went ape shit. We loved TV. We did not <laughs> like TV, but we just, I just listened. We listened to more music than we did watch TV. And what was in the ten CD stacker? Let's see if I can name ten. It would be like Van Morrison, Bob Dylan, um, Jimi Hendrix. Like I'm talking about, like the classic Rolling Stones. Like what? Yeah. Like Rod Stewart um that's five and then you've got probably bizarrely like something like michael jackson um like with the kids we would have snuck that in there 
Um, <laughs> definitely the Beatles, 100%. It's like my, the Beatles are my mom's, were my mom's like favorite thing. Um, oh man. Oh, then something weird. Yeah, like, three you know, more. Nina, like Nina Simone. Um, uh, let me think here. Probably Nat King Cole and and uh, we got one more, huh? Probably like a compilation. Probably a compilation like this is rugby. This is rugby league. <laughs> you know, like Channel Nine's. This is the sound of sport. Like a compilation. Got like Jimmy Barnes and <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Barnes, Tina Turner. Um, definitely the Angels. Just like yeah. um, Hoodoo Gurus. Like a compilation yeah. from a petrol station that my dad would have bought and been like, oh. ACDC. Yeah, like just a, a rock, Australian rock compilation. Mine was like Dire Straits, oh, Beatles. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my dad was really into Dire Straits. There was probably like five, five Dire Straits <laughs> albums. Hell yeah, and so there should be. I, Mark Knopfler was my favorite, my first concert. Really? Yeah, I went and saw Mark Knopfler when I was oh, like probably man. four. I, like I, I was like, I'm going to this concert and my friend... Um, I think. How was it? Yeah, it was awesome. We went to the Sydney Entertainment Center. We were like fourteen or fifteen, oh, and so good. And we sat in the like the nosebleeds and just watched watched this guy, this old guy, rock out on just guitar. Shred. Oh man, yeah. so good. He was like, he was playing the shit out of that thing. <laughs> it was a little bit plastic because of the the musical experience at the Entertainment Center when you're seeing like a, a an act that's like what do they call it? Like a legacy act, I suppose. Yeah, the yeah. the it was it wasn't like you know like this punk amazing it wasn't the best concert i'd ever seen but it was definitely like a like okay that's a that's like an uh, an icon doing what an icon yeah. does it was definitely an indication impactful. of yeah very yeah. impactful yeah i've always wanted to do a cover of the song brothers in arms but just like all on like portamento keyboard like wah, 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 no, wah, yeah no, no. that's nice <laughs> that's really nice but i actually think i don't know if i could actually sing it i think mm. the lyrics are a bit maybe not in my wheelhouse <laughs> uh, yeah 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 <laughs> Um, I, I, if I did a cover off that record, it would be, um, like latest trick, I think. Oh yeah. Cause Sweet. I just love that solo. <laughs> oh, so good. That's so good. I think you should do it. It's very sad. I'll Maybe do it later. Maybe we should do it together. I'll do it like way down the line. We'll do it in 10 years. Yeah. Let's if, do it. If you could get me this, like if you could do the instrumental and then send it to me, then I'll sing on it the next day. All right. I'll, uh, I'll get back to you in 10 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd like that. So, um, when did you start doing stuff with Roy then? So you, he was a, around on your first record, wasn't he? He he was, yeah. We, I've known Roy since we were kids. Um, yeah. And uh, we've been f- like in and out of like friendship circles since we were five years old. Until sort of later on in high school, we started like making music together. And he played bass and I played drums. We played in like a little band, like a high school rock band, and. Uh, I guess. What What was your band's name? Oh no, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I, I ask everyone, and it's like the biggest. Well, it was my favorite thing. It was the beginning of the internet age. You could probably still find it, and I'm like <laughs> not interested in in. I think like I'm I'm proud of things that I can keep from people these days. You know, because I'm like no, I, it's not. It's beyond like me not wanting you to hear it. I'm actually taking pleasure in in depriving you of it. You know. I'll give it to you one day. I, was it can, was it dick related? No, it wasn't. It was like really okay. super fucking earnest. Like Okay. But I wanted to be like um we with, with this weird like love of like the Rolling Stones and uh like you know those like re- those those uh 
retrospective bands like uh, Brian Jonestown Massacre and even even Dandy Warhols when we were in high school and even like you know because of that whole thing and um, and then it kind of this music in Sydney got really uh, it got really uh, really super competitive to be like who could put the most like 16th note indie rock grooves in their songs and things <laughs> got a little fucked up and we started doing like it got some bastardization where like I think someone like Block Party and the Arctic Monkeys like started fucking with our brains and like sure. everyone wanted to play fast and everyone wanted to play like like really intense jangly British sounding guitars and and so we ended up like you know if you if you love if you want it if you love, like I said, you love the Rolling Stones and you want to sound as good as Block Party, I guess you kind of end up sounding like the living end. <laughs> and so we're like a bunch of 17-year-old yeah, kids that. like playing the shit out of these instruments <laughs> real fast and like playing the Hope Town, you know. And, and were you playing drums then? I was playing drums, yeah. So was drums your first instrument? Um, drums, no, bagpipes or piano, bagpipes and then drums. <laughs> Amazing. Isn't that weird? Like my, my uncle is like well my my mother's side is really Scottish and so is my dad's. My my dad's my dad's a Cameron and my my mum's a Macintosh. And then somewhere in there is Chinese. So it's like Scottish and then like an eyedropper of Chinese. My dad's oh, wow. side. Yeah, have, my you, gr- have you done your DNA testing thing? No, I haven't. But my, my, my granddad was straight up half Chinese. So it was like oh, there was wow. like a bit of there's a little bit of that. Um, and there was like, I remember there like being these really odd caricature cartoons on my granddad's walls, um, at his house, at his like home, his little apartment. And like, it was this really weird, he must've been friends with a cartoonist or something. And this guy had done a caricature of him where he was like an, a, a typical caricature, um, like stereotype, like Chinese guy in his face, yeah. but he was wearing um a kilt and he had like scottish <laughs> socks on and he was like saying a scottish Amazing. thing but they like made like this phonetic kind of like chinese accent really inappropriate <laughs> oh no but i mean i think you know it was it was i don't know it seemed to be lighthearted, <laughs> and he certainly seemed to be proud of it because he put it on his wall you know <laughs> so do you st- can you still play bagpipes um i could probably play like the little practice chanter like the recorder you know because i can remember yeah. some songs it's very very melodic and very like uh, the, it's it's extremely fun instrument, but I don't think I could, I don't think I could blow up a, a I don't couldn't tune them. Like it, it was, I was like twelve years oh, old. Oh yeah, um, it's a complicated instrument. Yeah, and I I stopped. I, I was marching and I was playing in a Scottish marching band, playing bagpipes. My uncle was is like super into like tom drums, and he played bass when he was a kid. And oh, cool. He's a farmer. He lives way like ten hours north of Sydney. Um, but I wanted to do it because he looked cool when he wore his kilt, and then. <laughs> Uh, I got bored of the bagpipes or felt like I didn't want to do it anymore and I switched to snare drum in the same marching band. So that's how I started doing drumming stuff, like oh, cool. syncopated snare drum stuff. So how did you go from then playing drums in the, the your undisclosed band with Roy mm. uh, and you're sounding like the living end? How yeah. did you then <laughs> come to do what you do now? How Did, did you get into electronic music together with Roy? Or? I needed work big time. Um, to cover rent and I asked Roy for weekend shifts at a at a pizza restaurant because he was working there and he hooked me up I started doing Friday Saturday Sunday with him um, driving my uh, my girlfriend at the time her mom had a four-wheel drive that 
that um that I was using to deliver pizzas with. You know, so you imagine yeah. like a twenty four year old um living in Sydney, driving his mom driving his girlfriend's mom's four wheel drive, delivering pizza. It's kind of a weird, Amazing. a bit of a, a bad scene. Uh, and I was also working during the week full-time in, in like a government legal office. Um, wow. So it was like a, a fair decent amount of work, but I was trying to save up money so I could do these songs and I was like not getting much sleep and doing a lot of writing at night. Um, actually, CK got this gig in, in Tokyo when we went and did it. This is like the year before. And... Um, I bought a I bought a synthesizer in in uh, in Tokyo. I bought a Prophet 600, like the old one from the late oh, 70s. Oh wow! Yeah. Like the portable Prophet Five. And, Amazing. Um, I had that in my little uh, apartment that I lived in. It was actually a big apartment I lived in with my girlfriend. That's why the rent was so high. And I had my own little studio, and and I started like banging out sort of like much simpler versions of these compositions that I was like thought would be instrumental i was like i just took out a whole bunch of elements and started singing on them and that's what that's how jumping the shark kind of happened it was just like five or six elements musically i was going to sing on it and then i was going to mix it and put it out and i started playing roy those same demos uh in the pizza shop probably 2013 i guess 2012 that's so lovely and that's how it all started and that's what jumping the shark was yeah and he was like these are legit like i he was like you know because we hadn't been in a band since just after high school and so he was like i'm in if you want me to come and like i'll I'll throw down i want to be a part of it and so i said well you could play saxophone can't you he said well sort of and i said okay well then you can do that Did you have he does does he ever do anything else on stage? Because he's obviously he could play bass as well. He could play yeah he could do a number of things. But I I it just started like the more we played in clubs and the more shows we did, the more it was like I mean it's just gauging what the audience wants really. We're just giving people yeah. like it's a it's a little bit of a blindside when he stands up and just rips a solo. So it's like so good. So we're we we're, we're basically like let's highlight the solos and and i don't want we didn't we used to do where he sort of just played the whole time during the song and peppered it and did like textural stuff um as though he were playing in like a big band or something and and we it kind of was it wasn't that wasn't like that was of course our first idea because it wasn't the right one and and then he started sort of just like playing in pockets and and hitting moments that need to be hit and highlighting cr- like big crescendos and it just it just was like oh shit that's what we need to be doing because that's fucking show business and that's like how people totally. get excited you know <laughs> totally people get so excited like I saw your show at Laneway this year and yeah. people that is really like their favorite bit they cheer louder they cheer one hundred percent cheer louder for him than they do for me it's like one hundred percent. That's not true. It's it's a it's a dual effort. No, night after <laughs> night, it's like it's it's really it's a lot of it's actually I I I cling to that because it's like <laughs> I you know it's we're giving them uh it's like a it's a double prong attack instead of just being me and a faceless band. It's like oh we have the we share me and Roy share the stage. Do you think that being a multi instrumentalist yourself helps you like? approach a song holistically do you think it helps you with production and knowing what needs to be done um i i guess i i hear songs kind of complete in my mind when i'm when i'm singing them and it's ordinarily uh or it's been this way it's the chorus that comes to me first and it always comes to me full like i generally get 
a vocal melody, maybe one line, like a, a hook or a chorus line, lyrically, and then like basically the entire sound of the song, like drum beat, wow. drum beat, like what kind of feeling it is and what what instruments. It's like it's all there. So, I. I I don't get I don't get those every day. I get them rarely. The rest of the time is yeah. me. The rest of the time is me spent at the keyboard, literally just playing and like taking in a whole bunch of uh, like melodic t- like feelings and and like grooves and chord progressions and and then I go away and then I'll be like let's just let's take a drive and see what happens. It's like just feeding something into a you feed all this like sort of information into 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 my mind and then you wait to see what what it spits out you know in 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 a sub, yeah. in an unconscious moment you know? but you kind of feel that whole song coming to you like you feel all, all of the pieces come together yeah. straight away yeah yeah that's I, amazing I mean, that's how i hear it in my mind that's not that's generally not how it ends up on the album mind you yeah. you know it, a lot of I, obviously i can't exactly express what i'm hearing but that's how i feel that's how, like the level of comfort i get from it is like oh that's a whole thing that could be a whole damn thing how's it uh, how does it change when you write with other people so you've obviously written a bunch of songs with um with the killers and mm-hmm. um you've done lots of songwriting with friends over the years yeah um how do you communicate your ideas with someone who's not in your head um when I write with people, the the main idea is the main uh, co- like sort of approach in my mind is um, your my ideas aren't necessarily going to be the right ones. They're just my ideas, and so like I just I I'm, I try to be patient and I try to be encouraging because generally I'm helping other people with their music, and I've I mean I I, I trust my ability as as a, as a writer to to know that. Sure, the idea that I'm having could be really good in my mind, but it's not necessarily doesn't have to go on, you know. So I'm like, I, I really like helping people with their music, listening. I, as a songwriter, I would rather get five percent uh, songwriting credits because I was in the room and I helped the other person come up with it. In terms of, I encouraged them to come up with it. I would rather, as a songwriter, if someone asked me to come in and write with them, I would much prefer them to do literally all the writing and i'm just like a conversation piece and i'm i'm like we're talking about ideas and i'm sure if i might throw a line out here and there to sort of push to help it along but i would much rather um i mean i really do prefer it when i'm in a room and someone else writes all this and it's their song and they they leave the studio like fuck yeah i wrote that and i'm like fuck yeah you did and we go our separate ways you know because i don't actually (laughs) care life coach i don't actually care if i'm on the track lyrically (laughs) you know because i can write my own songs that's so nice but i would i would really i really do like it when someone else when i go into the studio someone's like i need your help to write the song and uh, I would go in and we would just talk and work and it's so much more rewarding for everyone if I mean I, to see someone singing a song on stage that they wrote but that I was a part of the writing process is really exhilarating for me it's really like holy shit it's like we were there I, I kind of helped in that but they're the ones feeling it right now that's the best collaborative experience and then I just obviously get my lawyers to take care of the percentage splits <laughs> <laughs> Do you, because I have a few people in my life and I'm sure, I mean, you have so many musical friends that you've worked with forever. Um, I have a lot of people in my life too where they're my people that I send stuff to, to, you know, to listen to and give me honest feedback. Sure. Do you find that that you are that person for a lot of people? 
Uh, no. Because it sounds like you have an ability. No, you're not. 100% no. I really... <laughs> I really... Unless I'm like... Unless they say I need you to work on this. And, right. And I, I, it's like I'm like really... Not, I mean, I know I just did a whole big spiel about how I like like rewarding other songwriters. <laughs> but I'm, that's, I'm, that's in the realm of me being in the room because we're under the impression that I'm getting paid or I'm getting like... Right, right. I'm getting... I'm, I'm interested now. It's much more... Like, I'm not that interested if it's like, hey, I just did this song. Like, any advice? I'm like, advice? <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll be $200, please. Yeah, advice. Did you say... Like, if someone wrote to me and said... If someone wrote to me and said, I am writing this song... Like, I'm talking about a random person wrote to me. If a random person yeah, wrote yeah, to me yeah. and said, I'm writing this song, I want to give you 30% for your input, I would, then I would click on it and press You'd play. You'd be interested. Yeah. <laughs> Not like, hey, I That's know we hilarious. haven't seen each other in five years, but I've got this album that I want you to hear. Like, any thoughts? Like, nah, I got no thoughts, man. <laughs> I'll listen to it, but I, it's, I, it's not giving me any thoughts. I'll keep my thoughts to myself. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they're, worth, they're worth 30% of that song, I suspect. Or, or it's good enough. You know, it's good enough. <laughs> Just put it out, man. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, can you tell me about... Um, so recently you had the Al Camathon, which was mm. a webcast that you did with Roy yeah. and some others. Well, it was 24 hours um, live. It was 24 hours live around the clock, noon till noon. Do you spend a lot of your time trying to come up with ideas for social media? Um, no. Or do they just come to you? I, I don't spend... <laughs> I really, like, every time I try to think about how can I fucking do this thing, I'm, like, really... I do become really... Un, I, I'm not motivated at all. And uh, so I, the, the Al Camathon, the idea of going live on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter for 24 hours to try and sell 1,000 albums. That was literally me trying to gauge if we could make money when we're not on tour. That was yeah. me That was me being like, okay, shit. Because we got back from... Um, we're basically set up here in Queens, me and Roy living in this house, but it's like... It's very much like this is our first time doing that in three years straight of touring. You know, we've, we've, been, on, wow. we've been on couches for three years. And... Um, we set it up and we got we, we finished the tour and we got in and we had this house that we'd paid a month a month's rent for and we were gonna have to pay month to month you know and um, and I just looked at the bank account and spoke with our manager and was like okay shit touring made us no money it co- in fact it cost us a lot of money um, as it does for a lot like ma- the majority of bands and well, yeah and you're touring with a band it's yeah it's very expensive it's very we're very like fortunate to have a a support network financially when me and roy we're in debt and and yeah and other people are in debt but it's like uh, the band's been taken care of Uh, i'm proud of that you know my manager is like really supportive really uh, basically like one of the one of the the top tier operators in terms of in our like in our in our business um, and then we got back from tour, we sitting in this house that we can't afford, and it's like, okay, well, let's see if our fans want to buy the record. You know, they definitely want to buy tickets, and they definitely want to come to our show, but let's just see if if they uh, actually want to buy the record, you know? Which, which um, I guess, uh, was something, was somewhat of a risk, I guess, to put ourselves out there and go live and say, no, we are trying to sell the album, because a lot of artists... I guess the general approach is, oh my goodness, I can't believe everyone bought the record. Like, I've gone gold. What a surprise. You know, like, (laughs) universal 
records major label like indie rock act holding the gold record is always funny to me it's like yeah <laughs> are you super proud are you you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's always funny to me um so i was like not to the piss out of those people but i just think it's funny when i see that i'm always like oh you sold a gold record and what label are you on oh you're on universal cool man like yeah <laughs> awesome i know what you that's mean that's their fucking yeah. job i hope those motherfuckers yeah. made your album go gold totally so your goal for the alchemathon was to sell 1000 records yeah yeah my, and you reached your goal we did it we did it in like the Amazing. last half an hour we did we went Amazing. live we had like um like like car dash um like uh phone holders you know that you like sort of like stick to things so you can see the <laughs> gps we had a bunch yeah. of those set up and then a laptop and a, and a tablet and we were just streaming across all platforms so i think on twitter you can stream for like 12 hours or something but facebook's only four and instagram's only oh. one God, i didn't know this so we were constantly refreshing feeds you know and like <laughs> and staying live and we went from noon uh, it got super painful around about... F- we went noon all the way through to around about 4 a.m. And we'd sold Whoa. 350 records. And there was eight hours left. Um, which all I could think about once we got to 4 a.m. was... That's like a full day of work with a yeah. break. Like, you know, in terms yeah. of like officially. That's a, a full day, you know. And I'm supposed to get an hour break. And I'm not, you know. So we got really tired and, and really I kind bet. of like... We were like... I was like, fuck, we're not even going to make it to 500. You know, like, is this going to be a failure? But people really came through. Around about, I, I took a nap for an hour and Roy kept going, doing God knows what. I still don't know what he did <laughs> during that hour. Um, but when I came back, we had sold around 370 records. So we still had a long way to go. Yeah. And I mean, shit, people started tuning in. People started rallying. A lot of people bought like, one of everything you know there was there was one person one person that rang in said they bought 10 cassettes because they were gonna sell them on as christmas gifts um and people went ballistic and and pulled us through around about uh 11 o'clock with an hour to go we had probably 150 albums to sell i think and it was like at that point i was like well fuck it we sold 850 like that's already a massive thing um and but instead of that people kept pushing people kept pushing and and yeah, the last we did it with about twenty minutes to go. We got the announcement that we'd sold a thousand. Amazing! I love this story. Yeah, <laughs> it was wild. It was wild. But we were taking calls at the same time because Roy has a hotline, like an international hotline, <laughs> that you can just call. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like when he when he when he activates it, when it's open, you can just call it and talk to him <laughs> anywhere in the world. I wonder if I can remember it. Triple eight, double five four, triple nine one. Wow! All right, it's out there. I might mm-hmm. um maybe I'll get drunk one night and call it. <laughs> Please call it anytime. It might not. He might go straight to voicemail. But if it yeah. if it rings, he'll pick up. Um, can we talk about Roy saving someone's life recently too? Yeah, this story made me so happy. First of Isn't all, because someone's life was saved. Yeah. But second of all, I was like, this is so perfect for you and Roy. Isn't and that ridiculous? What you stand for. Isn't that wild? <laughs> what a wild. I love thing. it so much. He. He, got, he was, like, on New York CBS News, like, getting interviewed with this, like, top-off, like, giving New York people, <laughs> the people of New York, beach safety advice. Because <laughs> they got no fucking idea over here, by the way. They have no fucking idea about beach safety. So, he was in, he, he saved someone from drowning. He did, yeah. We were down there on a Sunday afternoon. Um, it's kind of absurd, but definitely, like, 
under the influence. And uh, we went down and we were walking around kind of fascinated by everything. And uh, we were there with McLean Stevenson, who you might know, taking photos. Photographer. Yeah, yeah. Australian photographer who was over for my birthday. We went down to the beach. Right. And um, we decided to go out on the sort of the rock. They call it a wall here, a rock wall. But you'll see like in the US and probably a lot of other places that there's a man-made rock wall on the beach to sort of divide the areas. So it's like a jetty that that juts out, but it's made of rocks, you know? Yeah. Um, People stand on them and take photos. They they jut out into the the break of the water. And you want to go and have a look. It's sort of the classic vision is someone fishing off them. Um, but this this family had gone out there, and as we walked out there, thinking this would be fun to just go on the rocks, um, this lady ran towards us, and uh, and started screaming, "My son is dead!" And we were like, "What?" We were like, "Whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute!" And then it turns out she didn't have she had like it was like a definitely English was her second language, and so she was I think trying to say that her son was like in danger of dying because when we saw what she what she was pointing at it was like her son out in the surf and he'd fallen off the rocks or something and it was just oh, like no. frankly I have no idea how a family decides to go out and it was like this is the weekend of the hurricane down south oh, so yeah. we were definitely getting some of those conditions and sure enough her son was probably you know 15 20 meters out into the break and like just bobbing there going under the water consistently and Roy just didn't think twice took off his put his phone and his um, wallet down, took off his, his jean shorts and, and dove in and swam around through the, through the, um, like the swell. I mean, I guess it was, it helps to have like spent a lot of time in the water. He spent more sure. time than anyone I know swimming in the surf. Um, and he got to the boy um, at the same, around uh, just, just shortly before a, a surfer got to the kid and they they propped the kid up on a board and they they surfed him back into shore wow and this kid was gonna drown yeah it was like it was like serious and roy comes in and he's like his his boxer shorts are all in tatters you know he's like dicks hanging out he's got cuts (laughs) all over him because when he dove in the water he like took his one of his toenails off and oh uh, fucking hell yeah and this this reporter came over and interviewed him and then the next thing he's He's on he's on CBS News in New York talking about <laughs> beach safety, <laughs> and and he was intoxicated the whole time. Well, and the, yeah, and then we went and got like completely messed up at a bar because we were throwing a party. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but he definitely saved this kid's life. This like this really this kid was struggling. It was like it was wild. Didn't doubt for a second that he could do it. You know, it was like he's so in control in the water. I know that it sounds really lame, but what great content for you guys. <laughs> also, uh, that's funny because. I was like, I, in my mind, at that night, I was, we were like at this bar that we were throwing a party at, and I was like, no one's gonna know about this because I knew they interviewed him, but I was like, who's watching the news? That those th- those segments sure. are fifteen seconds long, and I was like, like no one's gonna know, but it was, you know, sure enough, it was um, someone on on someone saw it, someone saw it on CBS News, <laughs> recorded it, and or or CBS News put it out on on a website, and someone found it and put it on Reddit. And then Pitchfork picked it up and then it went like, it, all of a sudden Roy's getting requests to be on like morning TV in Australia. <laughs> Amazing. Isn't that funny? Amazing. Yeah. I love it. 
Hey, um, I want to talk to you about because um, when when your when your record came out, I really wanted to like talk to you about every single track, but I'm not going to do that because that's um, you know, that record came out a while ago now. Sure. But I lo- I really really love the record. Um, and that's really sweet. I, Thank you. Thank you. It's you know it's amazingly produced. Um, it's got incredible dynamics, and I love the the lyrical content. I love that it has a bongo feature. Um, oh yeah, there's a bongo, <laughs> basically a bongo solo. I love the bongo solo. Yeah. <laughs> I love that that was a decision that you made. A big time decision. Um, so recently, I just had a. I went to the states for a month just to have a road trip holiday, oh, and. Nice. Um, I was in Vegas and we went to the Neon Boneyard. Oh, cool! I was like, I was like, why does this sound so familiar? Because I didn't know it existed before. Yeah. And then I was like, fuck, it's in Alex Cameron's song. Yeah, I spent a lot of time yeah. in Vegas in a couple of years ago. I spent a lot of time there. Did that song originate in Vegas? It did. Yeah, we wrote that song in yeah. Las Vegas with Brandon Flowers. Amazing. And that's his line, actually. Yeah, this is running out of luck, and that's that's his line. He he um, we were writing that song. He invited us to go there and uh. So we said yes because I'm like I really really like his songwriting. It's been with me for a while now, and and Roy's a, yeah. Roy's a big fan as well. So when he invited us to come, we were very excited, and so we flew into LA and and drove a, a rental car from from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, and I was trying to figure out how to ask Brandon like where are we staying because he was like just come to Vegas, <laughs> and we had like eighty we definitely had eighty dollars in our account. <laughs> I remember it. It was like eighty eighty eight dollars, and yeah. so we're driving into Vegas, first time in Vegas, and uh, I'm sending him a text like, "Hey, like, I just I know he has a family, so I'm like, uh, just so you know, we're like definitely looking for somewhere to crash, but no pressure on you. But if there's someone you know, you know." And he said uh, he wrote back saying, "Oh no, I've already like sorted that out. You're staying here. And sent us all the details." Oh. And, and we had our own apartments. Me and Roy had our own apartments in the in, in the Palms Casino in like the really nice, like I'm talking wow. really nice apartment. And there was a, me and Roy had been touring for for a couple of years, and so we were like, basically for the first time in two years, had our own space and weren't sharing a bed or sharing like someone's on the couch, someone's here. Um, really, I can still remember the showers, and I can still remember the, the feeling of waking up in these hotel rooms and being like. Holy shit! Someone's taking care yeah. of us. This one, oh, this Brandon so is like nice. paying for us, and like, and we would every day we would go take our rental car and go to the Killers Studio in Las Vegas and just write and we wrote and wrote, and I one day I was like I have this um, chorus and I played in the chorus, and it's crazy, but it was very much like a Crocodile Dundee moment. He was like, "That's not a chorus. This is a chorus," you know. <laughs> And that was that song, Running Out of Luck. He had the melody and the chords. And I was like, motherfucker, wow. that's a chorus. So we started working on lyrics and um, pieced together this idea for the song. And yeah, that Neon Boneyard line is, is a Brandon Flowers original. Yeah, wow. I loved revisiting it after I went to the Neon Boneyard. Did you go? Did uh, you see Yeah, it? yeah, we did. We went and uh, and there's, we have photos of, of us standing underneath the Golden Nugget. I really like that place. It was it's really cool. cool. It's like it's definitely one of a. It's a definitely a, a good experience to go there and, and just see all these like. I mean, it's sad to me because I really like the idea of. I'm. I really like the idea of like a. Utopian casino that works, you know, and, and like isn't driven by, making sure that a lot of people lose. Um, yes. But, 
that that's what that place remind like sort of made me feel a little bit like oh back in the day it would have been naive and cool and and definitely more risky than than nowadays. It's pretty. It's a pretty weird place, Vegas. I'd yeah. never been there before last month, and yeah, it's pretty really exciting and depressing at the same time. Yeah, I'm glad you got to the downtown area, the old school downtown district, which is yeah, like really where it's that all was really happening. nice. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, so, you know, we were talking about um, The Killers a lot and you've done loads of shows with them now. Um, I was wondering how you go uh, with the difference of playing those massive stadium shows to the, you know, the club shows that that you do for your own shows. Because I find that the shows that I've done that have been like ridiculously large with Regurgitator, I almost have more of those like out-of-body experiences on stage at the big ones where sure, I, I just sure. wonder, what what is happening? What am I doing with my life? <laughs> Do yeah, you find yeah. that happen as well? Um, it's like a bit less connected or something. It is. It is a little bit supporting a band in an arena is a little bit like playing with a like a fishbowl on your head because it's like <laughs> a lot of the signal that you're pushing out, like your energy, has to travel a lot further and like actually through the PA, it has to it, it's projected at such a volume and it needs to go so far that i found i wasn't really i had to stop thinking about the fact that everything was being amplified and just think about what i was doing and it's i spent a lot of time on stage thinking about how little i looked to a lot of of people (laughs) i was very much like uh like i must look tiny when i was on stage i'd be like dancing like i must look like a really small man dancing on a windowsill (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I have those thoughts too. Or I have like, what? I wonder what what I'm gonna eat after this. <laughs> oh yeah, I often. I mean, on those on those shows, we would get in, load in, no sound check, just a line check as people oh, are coming man. in. Then you go and you have to eat at catering really quickly because you might miss yeah. out. And then you're back sure. on stage and you're just like, you do your job. You hope that some people like the songs, you know. And you try and you try and it's just it's like appearing on a like a, a television commercial instead of just doing totally. your job. You know? It's a little bit like it's it's kind of it's a de- amazing I would do it. I would s- recommend it to anyone. You know, it was really really like extremely rewarding. I learned a lot of lessons and and it also just clarified what I was doing, what I'm doing as an artist. It made me like look back like it, it was really positive and even in the negatives I felt I was able to take something positive from it. Yeah, um, it's a pretty lucky position to be in to be able to do those shows. Yeah, oh, very much. It's like it's no every time you get work. I've I've, I've been doing it for long enough to know that every time you get work, it's something that you've got to be like, okay, for whatever reason, I've been given the opportunity, yeah. and you don't you don't say no to this. If you really want to do it, you don't say no. You know, my part. That's how I make I make a living playing shows and. And I, I I value the live experience. Yeah. The albums feel as though they, it's like the album is a ticket into the live world in a way. It's like, okay, well, some people are hearing this, so I better go start playing shows. Whereas yeah, I think sure. it you probably used to be different from that, but that's how I feel about it. Do you still get stage fright at all? And is, does it change between the little and big shows? I don't get stage fright anymore. No. I mean, I get nervous but I've done so many shows that I kind of have managed to find a way to um, convert nerves into like an excited positive energy that makes me actually want to go on stage as opposed to sit backstage. Yeah. Um, that being said, nerves, I, I mean, I think 
from my experience, nerves are directly linked with experience. So if you haven't had enough experience, you're going to be nervous. And if you've had way yeah. too much experience, you won't be nervous enough. So I think there's a, there's a fine line. I, I value nerves. Definitely value nerves. I, I do too. I once, um, I had really bad stage fright because I, like a quite an anxious person too. Sure. Um, I used to get really bad stage fright back in the day and I tried to take a beta blocker once. Ooh, that's nice. I've done that. It's nasty. It's bad, man. Like I, I started, I think I've never been so bored on stage. Yeah. I was just like... This is fucked. What am I doing? Like this I'm so when is this gonna be over? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was going through such an anxious period that I took a beta blocker to go get a salad. Oh wow. Yeah. So it was it was a little I mean, I've never taken one on stage, but um, No, it's I wouldn't recommend it. I mean that kind of shit beta blockers on stage, I think uh like have a lot more value. I think it's meant to be for like orchestral soloists, you know, who are like yeah. I'm so nervous that I'm fucking the timing and pitch up on my violin. Totally. As my, a, my fingers are too sweaty to hit the right. Yeah, whatever. yeah. I don't... Yeah. I mean, I, I was recommended it by some people and I was like, I don't think I need to take beta blockers to be on stage, like, no. ranting and singing my lyrics at people. That's actually... I, I actually should be <laughs> nervous for that, you know? Yeah, that's right. I definitely think you need a, a certain amount of nerves to play a show. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think anxiety is such an interesting thing as a performer because mm-hmm. sometimes it's not even connected to your art. Sometimes it's just your day to day life yeah. that's you know makes you more anxious than anything. I mean, I ha- it morphs. Anxiety morphs, so it's never the same thing twice. It's rarely the same thing twice. Um, but yeah. it, it, I find I'm still, I'm very, I'm still very prone to like bizarrely lucid, like uh, sort of like almost uh, out of body like anxious episodes on stage i just wouldn't say it's stage fright i'd say it's like something more yeah. like something more deep-seated and and cosmic it's something very much like whoa this feels odd fuck back yeah. I, I back on the prize man like don't go too lucid yeah. don't think about it too much <laughs> well i guess that's the same just in everyday life isn't it sometimes you really go out there in your mind and then you have to reel yourself back in and yeah go just keep keep it together man <laughs> yeah yeah very much yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask you the last question, the question that I ask everyone. Mm-hmm. Tell me um, one of, I'm sure you have plenty of stories, but tell me one of your strangest show experiences or just one of the strangest things that's happened to you because you play music. Yeah, um, definitely I think the strangest musical experience was um, when I came over to New York uh, with, with CK and uh we did CMJ, I guess it would have been in 2011 or 2012. I'm not sure what year exactly, but it was definitely after we'd like played like thousand cat rooms in Australia and, and took that like plunge, like, Oh, we got the invite. So we may as well go over to New York and crush it there too. You know? And it's like, (laughs) Oh shit. No one's had our album over here. So things got a little weird during the CMJ week where we were like, we played some good shows, played some fun shows. It was, it was like, it was it was worth doing but one of the shows um we got it was like we'd agreed to do like an 11 a.m set after doing a midnight or 2 a.m set or something and so we got you know we we got blind drunk the night before and then well i I was woken up around about 9 a.m by our managers joe and jules and they were like we can cancel the show if you want because we were all like shaking with a hangover Oh, and no. we we're like, no, let's go and do it. It's a, it's a, it's you know, we we said we'd do our twelve shows while we're here. Let's go do the last one. Uh, 
and um it was like a it was like playing a baby sh- shower or something it was really <laughs> it was literally in someone's house in like i guess it probably would have been like it would have been in brooklyn somewhere and there were there were toddlers and kids running around eating carrots and wow. we <laughs> had to set up in a living room and play it in front of like 12 people. I guess they were like from like the advertising world or or like music industry. And um, we had to set up, we had to plug in all of our gear. We had like, you know, probably two MPCs, like drum machines, synthesizers, a laptop. I was supposed to be playing drums, but we decided not to because it was so weird. Um, <laughs> and we had to patch in through the family sound system. Like through a Sony CD player stereo system, <laughs> through like the the aux stereo what? at the back, and that those were our, that was our PA. What did that sound like? <laughs> it sounded like me trying not to, literally trying not to let like shit come out of my ass because I was so <laughs> like I had like a hangover, like oh, like quivering with like a bad scene. I swear, like sweat, <laughs> sweating from trying not to shit myself. <laughs> And like, uh, I can remember, I remember, I remember it being so soft and not loud enough that I heard someone crunch a carrot, like in the audience, you know, because there were carrots and hummus and stuff. (laughs) I hope it was in time. Uh, So pointless (laughs) and so not worth doing, you know, like so could have like just said, woke up and said, we're not doing this show. If I'd known, but I yeah. was under the impression like, wow, 11 a.m. showcase, I got to get there and set up. It was just yeah. different mindset. So that was definitely the weirdest. That is really strange. Strange, <laughs> like, and sweat inducing and like, just like, <laughs> what is going on? But how lovely that you all kept your word and you're all such professionals that you kept your show dates. Yeah. It's really professional. I mean, I guess it's, it has always, that has always been with me, like, this isn't a joke. I, I've worked too many other jobs in too many different industries to be like, I don't think I want to do a show today. It's like a, 10 times out of 10, a show is going to be like much more rewardable, much more accomplishable and much more simple than like having to figure out exactly why I'm tying up the bins at the back of a, of a cafe and like taking this garbage down to the car park dumpster. It's like that's Absolutely. to me, that to me is like a much more complex task than like playing a show. Yeah. Except for that time, you nearly shit yourself in someone's lounge room. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I that I would. I would definitely have cancelled that one in retrospect. A hundred percent. Hey, um, thank you so much for talking to me, Alex. It's been so lovely, and you know, we finally did it. It's been a I know. very long time coming. I'm really glad we did it. I'm glad. <laughs> and um, I'll, yeah, look forward to seeing what you do next. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. All right. Thanks, yeah.